0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, well... Today's going to be an incredible one because we have with us one of the most exciting rabbinic entrepreneurs of our time. She's the founder of what I think could, I guess, best be described as like one of the coolest startups in how to do community, certainly in the Jewish community and I'd argue even beyond. Uh, She's an author, teacher, just an extremely inspiring person. She's Rabbi Noah Kushner, founder of The Kitchen in San Francisco, and we're going to talk about spiritual entrepreneurship and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. But first, let me set the stage. So, when the book of Exodus describes the holy garments worn by the high priest in the temple, it singles out two things in particular by telling us that the priest needed to wear them tamid, which in biblical Hebrew means all the time. And those two things were the breastplate and the golden headplate, the choshen and the tzitz in biblical Hebrew. But what does this mean? Was the priest like really supposed to wear these things always, like like all the time? What about when he was sleeping? Did he have to wear them then? How about in the bathroom? The answer to that one at least seems obvious. So that's why already 2000 years ago, ancient Jewish tradition held that what the biblical verse meant is that while the priest served in God's presence, he had to constantly keep those two items in the front of his mind. He always had to be aware of them because somehow those two items, the breastplate and the headplate represented the sum total of the priest's mission. But how? Well, the best answer to this question I ever heard was from a wonderful teacher of mine named Rabbi Chaim Sabato. And he pointed out that these two items were distinct from all the other things the high priest wore, and that they were both things that had a name written on them. The headplate bore the name of God, and the breastplate with its 12 precious stones bore the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And ultimately to be a leader, certainly in the Jewish community, but I'd argue in any community or any intentional community, you need to somehow simultaneously hold both of those things as your highest priority. God and people, heaven and earth, why you serve and who you serve. And we live in a society that in many ways seems to be, as many have observed, like slowly tearing itself apart. And for decades, the notion of community has been subject to the forces of entropy and disintegration. And you can definitely tell a pretty bleak story about our civic and spiritual health as a polity. But personally, and maybe this is just my temperament, Looking around lately has given me a sense of optimism. I just see so many amazing experiments in creating, sustaining, and growing community. And at least in my experience, one of the best places to find this has been the Jewish community. So what's going right there? And what might still be going wrong? And what lessons can the rest of society take from the spiritual laboratory that is the Jewish community? And to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most exciting entrepreneurs and what it means to do community she's the founding rabbi of the kitchen in san francisco she's writing an amazing book forthcoming called the map agents get on this and she's rabbi noah kushner noah thank you so much for being here
2: what an introduction and what a pleasure it's i know it's a podcast but everyone should know that my cheeks are just burning it's too much it's really too much
1: let's rock and roll okay so san francisco I think when your average person on the street thinks about San Francisco, even if they don't know, like, all the internal politics and governance and blah, 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 they at least know what Silicon Valley is. And you don't often associate, like, the Camelot of tech with religious revival. And yet at the same time, maybe Silicon Valley, like one of the international capitals of experimentation, is the perfect place for a visionary experiment like the kitchen to take off, right? So how did you come to found the kitchen and why San Francisco?
2: Great question. Look, I'm a rabbi. I've been a rabbi for 25 years, and I wanted to see Torah live. I wanted to see the stories. I wanted to see the teachings. I wanted to see the words live. I didn't want them to be sequestered away only for the precious few. I wanted to see them out and about. And it's funny, when we first started thinking about the kitchen and building a community around learning and around um, sort of doing Torah, right, Shabbos, or getting together for meals, when we first started doing it, you know, people said, well, you need to do an environmental study to see if this is what the people want. Another thing a lot of people said to me was like, well, you should really, nobody wants religion here. Like, do like Jewish basketball. And, and I was like, I don't know how to play basketball. I'm a rabbi. Like, this is all I know how to do. And uh, in terms of the environmental study, I said, well, okay, how much does it cost? And they said $25,000. And I said, I don't have $25,000. The kitchen will be the study. If people come, then we'll know. And we just started by saying, let's not have a lot of big discussions. Let's just start doing things together and build trust that way. Let's pray. Let's see what that happens. Let's not be apologetic about it. Let's ask for what we really want. Let's dream together. And let's eat together and let's enjoy each other. And let's see what happens from some of that. I like to say I didn't invent the combination of prayer and eating. It's an old combination, I think the church picnic. People have been doing this, our people have been doing this, many people have been doing this for a long time. And in COVID, I feel like now that we can't do it, I feel the absence of it even more. But the idea is that maybe it's time to go back to the basics. And in fact, many people in my community obviously work in tech. They were happy to put down their phones And just do something face to face. We have this cute sign that we have when you walk into the kitchen and it says, God rarely texts. (laughs) Put it down for a minute and see what happens. I love that. So it's been a, an enormous privilege, actually. We're coming up on year 11, thousands of people, and I could never have predicted it, but really the honor, uh, the honor of a lifetime, really.
1: And what one of the things that I found was so cool about it was like, you guys don't have a building. You're a movement in the true sense of the word. So how did you come up with that kind of concept? What were, I imagine there were naysayers saying, well, you have to have a building. There's got to be a building fund and all that kind of stuff. Like, how did you go through that process?
2: Well, you know, I always like to say it's academic because nobody ever offered us one. But (laughs) in all seriousness, what we saw in some religious communities were the people who paid for the building then ran the community. And there was outsized power and outsized power distribution. And so we wanted to make an organization where the more active you were, that was how to accrue power and leverage in the community. And um, also freedom, honestly, freedom for me, freedom for the other rabbis to, to say things. You know, there's definitely a divide of no politics in the synagogue. The thing I don't agree with is the politics, right? If somebody says that in the synagogue. But I think there's, a, there's an opportunity to apply Torah to the streets. Again, I wanted to let Torah out of the cage, even if that meant there was a respectful argument. And um, I didn't want to feel like we were handcuffed. We couldn't say things because of this or that donor.
1: So American Jewish communal life, speaking of which, is not uh, not typically a field people associate with entrepreneurship and innovation. Like in my head, I associate it with like fancy galas that normal people would never go to or like organizations <laughs> celebrating like the 80th anniversary of hiring the first fundraiser or whatever. And yet here you come and create this really interesting model for building and sustaining and growing community so what does it take to be a rabbinic or a spiritual or theological entrepreneur as it were and more importantly how do we get more of that or maybe why don't we have more of it already
2: it's a great question look for me it's a little bit of the family business my father is a rabbi my uncle is a rabbi and my husband is a rabbi i swore i would never marry a rabbi because that would be professional suicide
1: my wife often says the same thing. It was her first and biggest mistake.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, and when we started the kitchen, I have a, a dear friend who's also a someone who is very forward in the community. And she said, just be careful what you wish for. And I think about that. But but I actually think for for people who want to start something, it's like I had to have it. I had to have a certain kind of Shabbat experience. I wanted to raise my children in a certain kind of a way with a group of people. I wanted them to know what it was like to watch other people say Kaddish or be at a Simcha or be at a celebration. I had to have it. And so when you have to have it, I feel like that's the, the character that's needed for someone who's an entrepreneur of any kind. Right? You need to see it in the world. If it's just kind of a cute thing on the side, you know, when the going gets tough, you may, you may decide to do something else. And for me, the idea that there would be Torah in one cloistered area and nobody would access it was really too much for me to take. And at the same time, and this has to do with the book that I've been writing, there's a large group of people who, when they think about religion, their first knee-jerk reaction is, is possibly suspicion or possibly, like, that's just irrelevant. There's a distance there. And I think religion even maybe has something to teach some of these people, not all of them all the time, but humbly some of these people. And there's a different way of looking at the world. There's a different way of framing questions that could help, could help create a path.
1: So I think that's a a perfect transition to the next question I wanted to ask you, because we, we live in an age in which I think all things being equal, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to default to a sort of like soft skepticism about religion. Now, For all sorts of reasons, I think this is both like philosophically and experientially wrong, but it's also the reality of the situation. And I imagine in San Francisco, you might encounter this more places than most, right? People asking, why should I be religious in the first place, rather than asking, how do I execute the religion I already have? So how do you approach those kinds of questions?
2: Such a good question. You know, I think that most people, when they consider religion or they're talking to someone like me, their first question is... What am I going to get from this? What do I get? It's a consumer mentality. Why? Because we're used to thinking like that day and night. Give me the best price for it, or I'm comparing a few things, or I'm in the marketplace. What will I receive? The tragedy, I think, so first of all, you have some synagogues that would just kick somebody out for asking that kind of a selfish question, right? That's tragedy number one. But then you also have a lot of places, religious places, that then try to cater to that person and make religion a product. The minute religion is a product, it's over. So it's a very interesting dance, it's something I've thought about many times, where someone's going to come in, they don't mean to come at it from the wrong way, they just, what do you got for me? I have to be able to answer that question honestly, here's some things I have for you. But if we don't eventually transition to what do you have to give, why are you here, what are we going to do together, then I really failed. For me, the kitchen is entirely that move of trying to move people from being customers 24 hours of every day to reaching for something transcendent.
1: Right. It's like if religion becomes a product market fit conversation, like you've already lost.
2: Exactly. Because there's there's always going to be like, there's a yoga retreat down the road. There's, you know, there's an app, you know, there's, there's plenty of ways to mainline whatever it's religion saying it can offer. But if you can invert it, and again, this is sort of where I began the book, If you can invert it and instead of thinking of consuming something, instead of entering, entering a garden, entering a palace, going somewhere where you cannot dictate the outcome, because if you did, you wouldn't get it from the gate. Now we're talking. Now this is interesting.
1: So two of my absolute favorite guests on this podcast have been Nellie Bowles and Tommy Collison. And aside from both being extremely awesome people, (laughs) another thing that those two share in common is that I believe they were both deeply involved in their journeys towards converting to Judaism by their experiences at the kitchen. Now, as far as I'm concerned, those are both like huge pickups for the Jews. I know you said you're not a sports fan, but I am. (laughs) And I mean, this was like the Suns getting Charles Barkley from the Sixers for like absolutely nothing. This was a huge trade. So what is it about the kitchen that makes it fertile ground for attracting that sort of thoughtful, engaged person. Maybe not even those two people specifically, although shout to them because they're amazing. But like the kitchen seems like a place where that kind of person gravitates. Why is that? What is it about what you're doing?
2: Boy, I love both of those people. I I think, number one, we're unapologetic. Okay, so I said I want to meet people where they're at when they come in the door, but we're, we're really not watering something down. I am praying on Shabbat, the Shabbat that I'm bringing this brand new person to. That's the Shabbat I need all week. So we're, we're not apologetic, but at the same time, full access. So one thing that we did from the beginning at The Kitchen, which was for sure the most radical thing, I looked at the kinds of families that we have in the Bay Area, and this will be maybe controversial for some people. I don't even use the word interfaith families because it connotes two different faiths battling it out. When generally you have secular plus secular, two secular people, you know, for them, religion is not interesting.
1: That's fascinating. I never thought about that.
2: I I also find that most of the families, when you say the word interfaith, they find it derogatory. That it's not something they gravitate towards, many of the families. So we just say modern families, okay? So anyone who wants to come can come. And we're not checking pedigrees at the door you know so when i started what i thought was there's this very strong boundary around who's allowed in but once you get in the variety of experiences were varying wildly you could be in but then still be basically illiterate you could be allowed in but nothing's happening right but all the emphasis was around who's in i said let's change the emphasis to what i'm willing to do what if i just say and, and by the way, I believe this is the future. Anyone's allowed in. Come on in. We're trying to grow. We're trying to expand. And you are a blessing. If you want to come in, you are our blessing. And now, if you want to do something, you need to demonstrate the integrity and the knowledge to do it, right? So it's not that I'm not letting you come up because you don't have this or that pedigree. It's that you can only come up when you're willing to really try it and you put in the effort to learn it to try it. So I think people like, you know, and you're picking some wonderful people like Nellie and Tommy, they see something real is going on and they're allowed to try it. They try it and, you know, they like it. They try it again. They go deeper and it's a very natural path. And then eventually, often, you know, I have a very straightforward style. So I'll say, you know, you're doing all the things. Don't you want the credit? Like, let's have the party.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jews never pay retail. Come on.
2: (laughs) You know, you're doing it. Come on. Let's seal this. Let's sign it. Let's make it covenantal and let's enjoy it. You know, let's have a party around it. So we convert a ton of people at the kitchen because I think they walk in and they know they're not going to be called out from the beginning for being other. They're not going to have to shed some kind of baggage. They're part of us right away. So it's interesting when you start with that level of acceptance, the conversion then becomes about something else.
1: This, I feel, speaks to kind of a larger societal trend. This may feel counterintuitive because I think the trend is actually to, or the trendy thing is to make the opposite observation, but I kind of feel like in a weird way, we're on the cusp of a golden age for community. So you see... A lot of things that people on various sides of the political spectrum will all kind of condemn as bad. They can't agree that they're all bad, but they can all agree that at least one of these following things is bad, right? So you have movements like QAnon, where when you really get into the personal lives of the people who are a part of it, you see that these are people who are just really desperate for a worldview that would give them a sense of belonging, even if the content of that worldview was deeply toxic. And during the pandemic, you had manifestations of this as well. Like if obviously less extreme extreme or bad than QAnon, albeit really influential, but you know, you had like massive social justice protests in the middle of COVID, which whatever you think about the politics of it is less important for these purposes. than the fact that even in a public health emergency, you can quench people's thirst to be a part of something. And even now I kind of get the feeling that there's a certain sort of pundit, like, you know, someone on Twitter who really misses the sense of solidarity and community that we had when we were locking down as a country right at the beginning of 2020. And everyone was basically on board with it. And my read on this is that what people are truly looking for is community purpose, the kind of thing that religion provides, I think in a, in a more holistic way than any of those other replacements for religion that people are seeking. So as we kind of emerge into what feels like whether we're there today or whether we'll be there in a month or in a year or in whatever, but we, we're going to be at some point in like the post COVID generation. It kind of feels like the wheel has turned a, a little bit, right? So, as we emerge into a new generation that's going to be kind of defined by its post pandemic reality, how are you, as someone who's built in this space and who, please God, is going to continue building in this space, how would you approach reaching this or, or sort of leveraging this moment? And How would you speak to other people who are aspiring to do what you do, whether in the Jewish community or beyond? How would you advise them?
2: Great question. You know, it's interesting because there are some organizations that really went towards virtual in COVID and grew virtually. And we brought on a beautiful videographer and, you know, we did things. I I had never had any technology at all. And we sort of, you know, like many crossed the Rubicon in uh, COVID. But coming out, I don't think, at least in Silicon Valley, for the kitchen, video is our future. It's not our immediate future. What I see happening is multiple smaller gatherings that are all experiences happening simultaneously. So I like to think of, you know, you know, even if you were to go to, uh, if you're traveling, one night you might be interested in going to, like, a five-course dinner, and one night you might want to sit on the beach and, like, have a sandwich, and, and one night you might want to just do what the locals are doing. I, I think we need different levels that all express religious ideas and experience together. When I dream it out post-COVID, that's what I'm planning on building. We also have this really interesting conversation going now with um, the Jewish community of Paris. They've been having a very, obviously, a very difficult time, anti-Semitism, and there's a lot of complicated elements about being a Jew in Paris right now. And we're partnering with them to bring a California curriculum and a little bit of freedom so that they can embrace and try and experiment. I mean, one of the great things about being in Silicon Valley is in terms of, of experiments or trying a different format or doing something outside, nobody ever says no. They love the idea of us just trying different things. So for example, we built our Sidur. We built it very quickly. We built the first Mahzor, a high holiday prayer book, and we made every single page transliterated and also in Hebrew, every single prayer, so that anybody could come in and read it right away. And we did it so quickly that the, you know we did like six weeks. Normally, this is something that like a committee of 20 people would take like three years to do, and then they would keep it for 40 years, right? We did ours really quickly. We said, we'll keep it for a few years, and then we'll keep adding prayers. And you know what? There were some mistakes in it. You know, we made it so quickly. There was a little mistake here, a little mistake there. And so I just stood up on the high holidays, and I said, here's our new prayer book. It has some mistakes in it. We all have mistakes in us. You know, happy holidays. (laughs) The larger idea is that if religion can afford experimentation, if we can, it's too important for us not to experiment. If we're too timid, we may lose our window. But if we can experiment and notice, okay, people are responding to this. Actually, a few people are responding to this, but it's really going deep with them, right? It's not always about numbers. But to play around with the edges of it and see how can religion live today, not check boxes but allow it to live. So someone coming out of COVID, for me, it's all about in person. But that's just me. I think there are many ways to do it. And also, I think it's possible to know your city and build something for your city. And then we learn from each other. I'm sure the Parisian Jews will have plenty to teach us that we'll take home from Paris.
1: I love that. And actually, you know, speaking of of the High Holidays, that's actually is perfect uh, transition because I... I am a longtime Rabbi Noah Kushner fanboy. I actually first encountered you years ago, long before I knew about the kitchen. And actually, I think it was even probably a year or two before the kitchen was even founded. Rabbi Lawrence Hoffman has these wonderful collections of essays dedicated to exploring different central texts in the Jewish liturgy. And I happened to run across his volume on Unatana Tokev in a bookstore somewhere, and Unatana Tokev being one of the emotional centerpieces of the high holiday liturgy. And I ended up buying a copy. Uh, shouts to all my fellow compulsive book buyers out there. Insert Tobias Fumke. uh, there are dozens of us, give here. And one of the essays that really caught my eye was yours. Um, and I won't quiz you on it. This isn't Tyler Cowen's podcast. But the upshot of the piece was that, Uh, liturgy, far from being this kind of stuffy thing people did in the past or this like infinitely fungible thing is actually this really dynamic process whereby we need the stability of the prayers, but the prayers also need us. That formulation, that articulation, even that turn of phrase really resonated with me. So someone who's deeply involved in building community, how do you approach the role of prayer in bringing meaning to individuals, but also forming us into a whole, doing something bigger than the individual?
2: Thank you so much, and it's such a beautiful question, and thank you for reminding me of my teacher, I, I'm Rabbi Hoffman, he's wonderful. He is indeed. Different cities need different things. I like to say a lot of New York Jews need permission. San Francisco Jews don't need more permission. Many of us are two and three generations away from anything that would qualify as normative Jewish experience. We need structure. And so I have really been teaching about what does it mean to enter into the words, that the words are big enough for you and that you can find yourself inside. Now, sometimes words will get in the way, like to the point, you know, I'm a woman rabbi, so I, I understand there are times when the words, so I say, okay, skip that page. You don't have to fight with the prayer book all the time. Find the place where you can enter the words. And, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, I think the first move for many people, and it's very counterintuitive, has more to do with humility, you know, traditionally what we call yirah, of just not to make everything for yourself. Ironically, it leaves you empty. Sometimes you have to enter into something else, and that's the way to find the meaning. So we definitely have classes where we study the words of the Sidur. We always try to explain, not in a didactic way, but we'll try to bring teachings as many, many rabbis do. But also the music is a huge part of it as well. Sometimes it's just letting the words live in you and saying them over and over again. These are different ways to find meaning.
1: One of the things that you you actually wrote about in that piece that I really loved was the idea of how so this particular prayer, for those who aren't familiar, it has a cadence that I think would be familiar to people from lots of different traditions. It's sort of talking about God's judgment and it's sort of, you know, says who will die this way, who will die that way, who by fire, who by water, who by strangulation, who by sickness, who by this and who by that. And I think... If you just read it off the page in a strange way, like without the con- without any context, you just read it off the page. It's kind of like reading Beatles lyrics off the page. It, do- it doesn't sound impressive with no context. And one of the things that you, I think, articulated in a way that really, really spoke to me was how it's precisely the stories both that we bring to the text, and I think this is the most counterintuitive part for this generation. It's also the stories that the text brings to us. and you know, when you talk about sort of being in a community, you know, out in San Francisco, you know, where people, as you said, are, you know, two or three generations removed from, you know, what you'd call normative Judaism, it strikes me. And this is actually something that we talked about with Nelly on the podcast it strikes me that what's really missing are those grand stories and narratives that are bigger and longer and more durable than your life. So how do you find the experience of bringing those long stories those, and those long time horizons into contact with people who are used to thinking and like, I have to respond to an email in five minutes? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's bringing up a few things for me. One of them is I have recently written about, you know, after the Tower of Babel falls... The rabbis comment that the top third is like incinerated and the bottom third goes into the ground and the middle remains. And what's striking, the rabbi's comment on this is nobody goes back. They don't go back and pray at that old tower. And I think my first hit on it is like once enough falls down, like as in COVID, time starts feeling quite different and you can't go back to the way it was. And different things emerge, different kinds of connections between people, the end moves, the beginning. And one of the things I talk a lot about with with people, so a lot of times a wedding couple will come to me and one of the things I like to say to them is, you know, the whole wedding industry will say to you, this is your day and I'm here to tell you this is our day.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: Meaning, if you make it for yourself, you will cut yourself off from the orbits of like any bride and groom or bride and bride or whoever stood under the chuppah you will cut yourself off from anyone who got married with this Torah portion. You will cut yourself off from the generations of brides and grooms, past, present, and future. And it turns out that these orbits through Claudius Yisrael, through all of Jewish life, through time, actually will completely change and transcend that wedding. And so... When we get to the great stories, I think a piece of it again is like, how do we move from ingesting a story and being like, I got it. That's like the Cliffs version or the, you know, the short version or like, or this is my hot take on the story. How do we move from that to like, I think I'm supposed to be inside this story. And what I say it a lot of times to my B'nai Mitzvah students is like, it, it would be like a place you visited on vacation and you went back when you every year, it's gonna look different to you every year. And the idea would be it would be entering the story, but not just once, many times. And that's that's where the layers start to take place. You know, I tell the story of we put this verse on my youngest daughter's birth announcement, Ilufinu, if our mouths could hold as much water as the ocean holds waves, still we would not have enough thanks for you, God. And we didn't know it. There was a popular tune to it. So all these people, this is a long time ago, started singing into our answering machine like this tune. And we're like, why is everyone calling us and singing? And then we oh, okay, we learned.
1: The Jews are undefeated.
2: <laughs> so my point is that actually a few years later, my kid comes home from, she went to a preschool, a Jewish preschool, and she starts singing this song. And I just looked at her and I said, that's your song. And I went and I got her birth announcement for her, right? If I had written the most heartfelt personal thing on her birth announcement... None of that other stuff could have happened. And who knows? She's going to see that verse in a prayer book at some day. It's going to trigger something for her or it's going to open something for her. The stories can be there not for us to ingest but to enter. And when we have the courage to enter them over a long period of time, I think that's where transcendence takes place.
1: That is absolutely gorgeous and a, a perfect place to leave this. My only uh, last remaining question for you is I know you're working on uh, on a book called The Map. So I know I know you know we we're, we're early we're early days yet, but can you kind of give us a, a little sneak peek into what we should expect because uh, your first pre-order is definitely here, and I know the listeners will join me.
2: Thank you so so much for that opportunity. After talking to many, many people over decades. I realized that there are so many spiritual books, they're advocating this spiritual experience or this spiritual system or this spiritual idea. But if you wanted something systemic, that is, you wanted a frame with which the well to hold all the spiritual water, the way to approach this kind of a walk towards spirituality, most people didn't even have the beginning of the way to think about it. And so this book is the beginning of the way to think about it. And it's specifically also, it talks about, it's sort of like showing people around religious thinking, you know, as if I'm inviting you in and we're going to take a look around. And in addition to that, I'm also really interested in the role of social justice and how critical it is and how it is actually of a piece with this kind of religious thinking. It cannot be separated out. So I make the argument for that.
1: Beautiful. This is incredible, and and uh, we'll we'll definitely let everybody know as soon as it can be pre-ordered. This is really really exciting. Rabbi Noah Kushner, thank you so much for being here.
2: What an honor, and I love the I love this podcast, and I love the work you're doing, and I hope that we can just stay in close touch. Thank you for all that you're doing.
1: Heck yes, amen. 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 I love that word that Rebecca Kushner used, unapologetic. I mean, given the moment that we're in, the needs of individuals, communities, society at large, what could be more intuitive, compelling, majestic than religion, than faith, than community? Now, some people are born into a world where this is already the norm and of course that comes along with its own challenges, taking good things, you know, good things for granted and so on, but at least you're starting from somewhere. But what if you're not? I think what Rabbi Kushner's work and thought shows is that coming to this not through birth but by choice can be tough, but it can also be a blessing, not just for the individual but for the community as a whole. It brings its own form of enlightenment and wisdom to someone like me who didn't go on that journey. And probably the most important thing it teaches me is community isn't something that just happens. It's not something you are. It's something you do. So. If you're listening to this episode, let's use it as an opportunity to think deliberately about next steps. What are we going to do in the days and weeks ahead to build our own communities, our own families, our own sacred spaces? I can't tell you where that journey will end, but I can tell you where it starts. It starts right now. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time.
0: Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul shot podcast presented by Benet Zion. Follow us on Twitter at G Faith Effort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soulshop Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios and check out soulshopstudios.com.